Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the week after Easter. You're the extra spiritual people who are here the week after Easter. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I don't have to worry about that. I love having conversations with other pastors like, oh, how was, how was Easter for you guys? It's like, well, our members are in church every week. And they're, they're, they're kind of shocked by that because their, their members show up on, on one day together. Um, so I am thankful for you guys. All right, so uh, we are jumping in to our series in, in 2 Timothy. And because there's a lot to cover this morning, uh, and because it is very practical, it's a rich, clear text, uh, I don't think an introduction is needed. Uh, so we're going to jump right in. And I actually want to begin by reading verses 13 and 14 because there's, there's kind of three sections here. Um, that are three paragraphs and separated by a chapter, but there is a process of thinking here for Paul. Verse 13, chapter 1, 2 Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now this is written in light of what comes next. Timothy, be encouraged, be strong in the faith, be strong in the love that is in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, guard the good deposit. It's been entrusted to you, why? Because you are aware, verse 15, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Fugulus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And when you well know, and you well know the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what, you have, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. You are good and just and righteous and true. And through your Son, you became our righteousness. May everything that we do and say be out of that reminder. May our strength and our hope come from the grace of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not our own efforts, our own contributions, or our own failures. It is you and you alone who calls and equips for ministry. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to bring the dead to life, to open the eyes of the blind, to give ears to the deaf, to give hearts to those who are dead. We trust in the power of your spirit to use the word that he breathed out through the mouth 
of one servant to another, one beggar to another, this is the bread of life. This is where we see Christ Jesus. May we feed on the word of God this morning. May your spirit prepare us and feed us and build us according to the image of Christ, according to your word. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, hopefully you can follow Paul's line of thinking here. Why was Paul urging Timothy not to be ashamed? Why was Paul urging Timothy to guard what was entrusted to him? Because being ashamed is a real problem. Not just then, but now. Especially in the province of Asia. It, it happens far too often in ministry. And I think sometimes we think that either we're special or we're immune to the things that happen there. The Apostle Paul, his ministry affected the, the churches that were spread out from Jerusalem. He goes among the Gentiles. He plants churches. He establishes elders. He labors alongside them. He builds them up. And then he goes to jail and they run. They're no different than when our Savior was put on the cross and his own apostles ran. We're fearful people. We're timid, weak people. And Paul knows that Timothy is timid. Timothy has struggles spiritually and physically. And he is urging him, don't be like those other ones. It's interesting that this province of Asia... Um, one of the largest in the Roman Empire. Ephesus being the capital city. Close to a half a million people. Now we don't know how many churches or how many members in those churches. And I don't know if Paul's being hyperbolic here. I don't know if he's, if he's exaggerating. But he says no one other than one has not fleed me. It's not turned their, their, their back on me. Who would rather have the, the comfort of their own lives than share in my chains. It's a stark indictment of the church. Maybe he's just speaking of the leaders. And there are many. And he's probably mentioning these two men here. And just side note, I practiced all day yesterday and this morning trying to pronounce these words, which, by the way, scholars cannot uh, agree on how Figulus is actually pronounced, so it's not just me. Hermogenes I got. Um, but these two, they're among many. They're probably in Ephesus, but there's one, Onesiphorus. He often refreshed me. That, as a pastor, is underlined three times in my Bible. What a blessing it is for those who refresh us in the Lord. And for those of you in this congregation who refresh me, who refresh Brett, who refresh Jesse, praise God for you. May the Lord continue to bless you. Because ministry is difficult. And there are many in ministry who are an in, in, in anchor. They are anchored to Christ, so we love you. But often you want to hold on to us more than holding on to Christ, or hold on to your sin, or hold on to your, in, into your pride. And so... Members of the church can be an anchor that, that drag behind you and make ministry difficult. But those who refresh you, they become a sail. Where the breath of the Spirit billows out this cloth and it, and it pushes you forward through the water. 
I love the picture of Onesiphorus. He often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. He saw the beauty of the gospel ministry as much more valuable than his freedom, and he associated himself with Paul in his lowly state. That is why Paul says, but when he arrived in Rome, he, he, he sought Paul out in Rome in prison. He searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Didn't Jesus tell us, when I was hungry, you fed me? When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. Lord, when do we do this? Whenever you did it to someone in my name. When you visited one of my brothers. And so this beautiful prayer of encouragement for Onesiphorus. How much of a refreshment he'd been to Paul and those in Ephesus. And so this seems like it's almost out of place. Because everything in the first chapter has been this gospel encouragement to Timothy in his ministry. And then there seems like this, this disconnected side note here. Everyone has left me. There's this one faithful guy. But see what Paul's doing here. This is a practical example to show the need for what comes next. This may be the situation in the church in Ephesus. But Timothy, here's the solution. So you then... In contrast here, not like everyone else, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He wants to make sure that Timothy's not just another casualty. He also wants to give Timothy marching orders and a solution for the problem, for those who are ashamed in the gospel because they need teachers. We'll get there in a moment. You then, my child, just like Paul has a brotherly affection for Timothy. He has a fatherly concern. He discipled him. He probably placed him in his eldership. He laid his hands on him in ordination. You then, my child, I brought you up in the faith. There's this, there's this, this picture of a father passing on the family business to his son. He is handing over what has been entrusted to him. I give you, my son, what is most valuable to me, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So when he tells him here, be strengthened, this in the Greek shows that Timothy is to strengthen himself. Not that the strength comes from him. This is similar to fan the flame. You have been given the grace, now take hold of it. Now, be strong in it. Build spiritual muscles, Timothy. I know you're a little scared, but do some push-ups. Build up your endurance. You've been entrusted with a great treasure. Continue in it. And that great treasure is evidenced to you and given to you by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is no light thing. We don't just say the word grace lightly. Because it is grace, unmerited favor, that separates us from every other worldview on the planet. And like we said last week, we see the amazing grace of our triune God through our salvation. We talked about the preexistent grace of the Father, who before time began, 
wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life. And in his agreement with the Son and the Spirit, prepared a people for his Son, promised to give them his Spirit to make sure that they would never be lost. We see the manifested grace of the Son who stepped down from the throne of glory to walk with dirty, sandaled feet, to make known the very presence of God among men. He manifested the grace of God while we did not deserve it. We could not merit it. He merited it on our behalf. He walked in such a way that every jot and tittle of the law was kept and fulfilled in him. And he walked in such a way that the entirety of the ceremonial law was completed in him. Being the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. He died alone on that cross because only he was worthy to die as a spotless lamb. We didn't go there with him. He died in our place. That is the grace of God. And that was enough. But, because we will screw it up every chance we get, he sends his spirit. and gives us the continuing grace of God. Because we don't know how to pray, we don't know how to speak, we don't know how to grow on our own. But he teaches us how to cry out, Abba, Father. He teaches us how to pray. He helps us understand the scriptures. He convicts us of our sin and he points us to Christ. This is the gracious God who before eternity began had a plan for us, sent his son to die for us and his spirit to preserve us. This is the grace that Paul wants Timothy to be rooted in. This is the grace, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, that you need to be rooted in. We need to hear this again and again and again because grace is so amazing we don't believe it. Grace is so amazing that our minds can't comprehend it and our flesh tends to forget it. This is why Paul tells Timothy, be strengthened. This is where we find our strength, our capacity for ministry. If you're going to build spiritual muscles, this is your spiritual creatine. Take, your, take your, your, your protein shake this morning. And this is the foundation of everything that is to come. And I need you to hear me, hear me on this. We're going to spend a lot of time about working in the rest of this passage. We're going to talk about fighting. We're going to talk about... Um, competing, we're going to talk about working, but you cannot learn to work until you learn to rest. You must rest in the finished work of Christ first. Because some of you in this room struggle to work, and you are lazy in your Christian faith, and that is a problem. But some of you in this room struggle to rest. You are working so hard in your Christian faith that you say, God, I don't trust you, so I need to continue my faith on my own. Both of those errors are wrong, and both of those errors are going to be addressed. But you must rest first. Because if you don't have rest in the finished work of Christ, if you can't say, Jesus paid it all, I need to keep paying, then you have a different gospel, and you're going to be exhausted, and you're going to burn yourself out. But once you do rest in the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, now you can work. Now you can fight. Now you can run. Now you can wrestle as an athlete and work as a farmer and fight as a soldier 
because of the one who died for you, who purchased you, and who strengthens you. So as we get into verse 2, um, this is and has been from day one coming to this church, my thesis for men's ministry. Um, so we are going to be primarily talking to men. We are primarily going to be um, talking about pastoral ministry, but there's implications for all of us here. Before coming into ministry, I was privileged to talk to many men who had ended well in ministry or continued on in ministry. Men who had ministered for 20, 30, 40 years. And every one of them said, raise up godly men. Train godly men. Because if there are strong men in the church, there'll be strong women, there'll be strong families, and you will have generational health in the church. The problem in the modern church is that men don't want to lead, and so women have to. And so the design of God is turned upside down. This is a fact. When women drag their families to church, that church will not be around in a couple generations. But when men lead their family and bring their families to church, that church will be healthy for generations. And so this is my, a thesis for men's ministry in particular, but we're also going to see how it's a thesis for discipleship in general. So there are four important phrases that we're going to look at um, in verse 2, and could do an entire sermon on verse 2. Um, but I want you to see these and see how each one of these is important. Number one, what you have heard from me. First phrase here. Here's what Paul's saying. This begins with authoritative apostolic truth. The gospel that has been given to Paul, not what is new, not what Paul invented, but we'll just pass on from Christ to Paul. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to start here. That's why in our vision statement, we begin with teach truth. It must begin with the word of God. And that truth must exalt Christ. It came from Christ. It is to show people Christ, and it is to exalt Christ. Paul says, Timothy, begin with that. Don't begin with a book or, or a seminar. Don't worry about anything new. Jesus Christ, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is the one that we build our ministry on. He is the one who called me. He is the one who called you. That is where we begin. What you have heard from me. Number two, in the presence of many witnesses. This is important. Christian doctrine is always public. Meaning, we don't have one set of doctrines for, the, for public consumption and then some other shadowy belief behind the scenes. This is what cults do. They give you all of the, the easy, palatable doctrine up front, and then when you get in, they give you all the other rituals behind the scenes. We have a public faith. It is not some shadowy, private revelation. We are not hiding our gospel is confirmed 
established and carried throughout history. This is why we can stand with the early creeds of the church and say we agree with the church in the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries. We agree with the apostles in the 1st and 2nd century. We are not people who are inventing something new. What you have heard from many witnesses. Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to any of you in Ephesus. So, what do we learn from that? If someone says they have a secret, lost, or new word from the Lord, they're a liar. If someone says they have a secret, lost, or new word from the Lord, they're a liar. But that appeals to people. Oh, it's something new. It's something fresh. Have you heard of the gospel of Thomas or any of these things? We think because we're obsessed with everything new that if something new comes to our eyes, this must be the next best thing. The gospel, the inspiration of scripture has never been in doubt in the history of the church ever. And it wasn't in Paul's day. I declared it publicly. I didn't hold back anything. I left nothing on the table. And so, since we have a, a, a public faith, this is also why we hold to confessions. The gospel does not evolve. The word of God does not evolve. If you are faithful in the first century, the fifth century, or the 16th century, or the 21st century, you have the same doctrine. And so we stand with those who are faithful throughout the ages. And so, as always, we must be Bereans. We must take what is given to us by God, or what we hear from men, and we, we compare it to what has been given to us by God. We test it to see if it is from the Lord, to see if it is good. And so how do we know if something's good? How do we know that it stands up to the test of all these witnesses? We have been given in our very hands what has been testified by many witnesses. This, the word of God, inspired and preserved by the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing that Paul entrusted to Timothy in its infant form. Praise God, we have the fullness of his revelation in our very hands. We can trust it because it is God who gave it to us and it is God who preserves it throughout the ages. So number one, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, number, number two, number three, in trust to faithful men. Remember the title of our series, For the Faith, Entrusted to Endure. These are the, the, the themes of the book. This good deposit, the faith, the apostolic doctrine that has been passed from Paul to Timothy, the treasure of the person and work of Christ, this is the foundation of our faith. This is what's been entrusted to you. This is what is more valuable than anything else. This is what is more effective than anything else in ministry, the word of God. What was given to faithful leaders, Timothy, guard this with your life. Protect it. Because it's been, it's been entrusted to you. And pass it on because it's not only yours. I think a lot of pastors think, I've got to hold on to um, my little sphere of influence and my little, in my little kingdom so I won't pass it on. It has been passed down to you. Pass it on to others. But we entrust it to faithful men. 
Because if it is valuable, you do not give what is valuable to those who are untrustworthy. This is my pastoral goal. I am thankful for many young men who desire this. We've got to be honest for a moment. Sadly, most men do not want to be leaders. Most men struggle to be leaders in their homes. Most men do not want to be leaders in the church. They think that someone else will do it. I don't, I don't, I don't have to be faithful because there's, there, there's someone better qualified than me. Let's be honest, men, I'm talking to you this morning. If you are a man, you are called to be faithful. If you are a man, you are called to lead someone. If you are married, you are called to leave your wife. If you are a father, you are called to leave your children. If you are single, God has called you to lead others who are not as mature as you are. And if God has given you gifts, we made a call earlier in the year. We said, Deacon, men, we're struggling. We need deacons who will be faithful, who will care for the body. If God has given you a gift, use it for the glory of God. I hope Darren doesn't mind that I, that, that I shared this, but it came to my head, and it was, it was a really good example. Darren asked a pastor friend, and he sought counsel, should I accept the call as deacon? And his friend asked him three questions. I'm going to keep using this for the rest of my life, by the way. Thank you. Um, do you love your church? It, can you do what they're asking you to do? And number three, if the answer is yes to the first two, so what's the problem is the third question. I love that. It's true. We need more than a few good men. A lot of you know that I am privileged to have a lot of great relationships with pastors, um, a lot in Florida and then throughout the country. The number one thing I hear from pastors is we need more faithful men. I can't get men to serve. I can't get men to commit to being a deacon. I can't get men who have a desire to be an elder. Men, we are, we are lazy, obstinate creatures. It's so much easier for us to just show up, assume everyone else is going to do something, and then go home. This is why it's so important that you entrust it to faithful men and you train other men. This is the number one prayer of every pastor I speak to. I need more faithful men. I'm overwhelmed. And so every man should desire this. Whether you are an elder or not, whether you're a deacon or not, whether no one ever recognizes you publicly, when you read through 1 Timothy 3, and I want you to turn to Titus 1, you should desire to be seen that way because all those things are honoring to God. And if you do those and you are recognized, you have an impact on your family and on your, your church. And so what does that look like? What does this faithful man look like? He says to Titus, chapter 1, verse 5, there's a problem in Crete, like a problem in Ephesus. Things are in disarray. They don't have faithful men. What is the solution to the problem in our churches? This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. What does this elder, what does this faithful man look like? If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer or elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. What is this faithful? That's what the faithfulness looks like in his life. What does a faithfulness look like when it comes to the good deposit? 
Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here's the solution. Apostolic doctrine. Publicly proclaimed. Give it to faithful men, but it doesn't stop there. Number four, who will be able to teach others also. Notice Paul's view of ministry. It, is, it has four generations. Four human generations. It begins with Christ, but it goes from Paul to Timothy to faithful men to the ones that they will teach. That is how the mind of, of ministry should be. This is how we should view ministry. It's not for ourselves. It doesn't end with ourselves. The gospel has been proclaimed and applied before you got here. And if Christ doesn't return, it will be proclaimed and applied after you leave. And so are we, do we have in mind the next generation? Do we, as men and women, have in mind discipleship? I won't be here forever. Do I take what the Lord has taught me? Do I take what has been entrusted to me, the goodness of the gospel, and find someone else who I can entrust it to and help raise them up? This is an important part of ministry, and it is rarely practiced today. The faithful pastors I know get this, but so many pastors don't. So many pastors and so many churches think it is their job to put on the show or to come up and preach and go home and assume they're going to live forever. And when they don't, when something happens, the church is scrambling. It baffles my mind that churches have been established for years, churches that have vast membership. They have one guy who is qualified, and something happens to him, and then they're in disarray for the next two years as they're trying to search for some guy across the country when they have not raised up one man inside their own church who would be, who is able to teach. It's crazy to me. This is built into the DNA of pastoral ministry. Teaching is not just relaying information. And when the young guys ask me about teaching, we talk about this. How can I grow to be a better teacher? It is not just relaying information. It is training future leaders. It is relaying the word of God in such a way that hearts are transformed. And you can't do that if you don't know people. You are never going to be a good teacher if you don't love those you are teaching. If you don't want to see them grow in Christ. If you are not strengthened by the grace of Christ, they won't be. And it is only because God is faithful that his word will not come back void that our terrible presentations of his word have any effect. But when you train men who will train others also, you ensure churches will be healthy for generations to come. Providentially, this lines up with our men's study, so I want to talk about that for a moment. I love how the Lord does this often. Our desire, my desire in men's study, you know what else I love? I love that, that you guys get this. The last couple months, we've had 60 guys over there. And it's, it's not like we're playing patty cake. Like we're, we're, we're digging into deep theological truths. But the goal is always to inform our minds and have right doctrine so that we can apply it to our lives. So that we can understand and be good teachers in our homes and in the church, but also take something that is complex and we struggle to understand and put it in simple terms. 
and hold one another accountable in that. And I love that the young and the old men learn together. That the young men with theological training learn life wisdom from old men. And older men with life wisdom learn from the, the theology from the young men. And here's what will happen over time. The men who are solid in their doctrine, it will be evident to all. When young men ask me, what, what would it take to be an elder here? What are you guys looking for? Well, there needs to be an internal call from the Lord. There needs to be a recognition from the elders, and there needs to be a recognition from the members. If you are called to ministry, everyone will know. It will be obvious. And those men who not only, as we saw in, in Titus, are able to rightly divide the word and apply it, but the faithfulness of their lives and their homes will, will stand out. The cream will rise to the top. And those whose lives and whose doctrine are shown to be faithful, they are the ones who should be teaching others because a teacher is a high calling and it, there is a high standard. As James tells us in James chapter three, verse one, where he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I think that for many young men, teaching sounds appealing because it's flashy and I get to be up front and that's where the real work happens. But that's also where the real responsibility comes in because you have to stand before the Lord one day for every word that comes out of your mouth. And so that's why we don't take teaching lightly here but we know that the Lord is faithful. He's faithful to convert me and teach me and faithful to convert Brett and Jesse and elders all across the world. And he will be faithful to raise up the next generation of men. And he is doing that right now. Not just in this church, but in many faithful churches across the world. All right. So now that we did that, our next section here. He illustrates this. Uh, in chapter 2, there are six different metaphors for the Christian life. We're going to cover the first three today. Every one of them parallels ministry with some everyday idea. These three are very common, um, common occupations. So number one, share in the suffering of Christ as a good soldier. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is our main metaphors. We're going to spend most of our time, uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of hit the other two a little bit more because this is the one he spends the most time on and I think the good soldier really puts it all together and then the athlete and the farmer uh, complement it. So, Paul uses this imagery a lot. Why? If you read Acts 21 and on, the last couple years of Paul's ministry, he was surrounded by soldiers. If you lived in the Roman Empire, they were everywhere. They'd be standing, they'd be eating, they'd be, they'd be marching. They were ubiquitous. And Paul was protected by them, was jailed by them. He had, in the last year of his life, he had one assigned to him the entire time. And so that's why when we read Ephesians 6 earlier, he has all this imagery in mind. I want us to turn there. I want to spend a little bit more time in the whole armor of God. Because... Good teachers take what we see in our lives and apply spiritual truths to them, just like Jesus did. 
We use things in our everyday life. People need illustrations. We are, we are, we are visual people. When we, when we see a cross, we, we, we think of Christ. When we see the bread and the cup, we think of his body and his blood. When we see the waters of baptism, we think of new life. And so we're, we're visual people, and so Paul, as a master teacher, creates this master visual at the end of Ephesians. And so he speaks of the Christian life as in warfare terms. And notice he says the same thing when he's writing to Ephesus that he says to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Timothy, my son, be strengthened in the grace that you have in Christ Jesus. In his strength, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, this present spiritual darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and, giving, and having done all, to stand firm. So remember, we see the rest. Your, your strength comes from God. But now we see the work. Take up the armor. This is what you need on the front lines, Timothy, to continue in ministry. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. It begins with truth. Why did they need a belt? Because it kept all their clothes together. This is what holds everything in place. It is the truth of the word of God. It is the truth that holds your sheath, which holds your sword. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we know that it is the righteousness of Christ that brings our heart to new life, and the breastplate covers your chest. Because if you get hit in your chest, you die. But because you have the righteousness of Christ, you won't die. Timothy, don't leave for the battle without remembering you are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. How is it that soldiers can move forward? That they can look to someone in front of them who wants to kill them and not turn around and run home like a coward because the gospel is on their feet. My king is victorious every step I take. I take steps toward an enemy who's already defeated. And the gospel of peace, when the enemy is defeated... I don't know where I was going now. <laughs> and the gospel of peace, when the enemy is defeated, then peace comes. When the enemy lays down their, their weapons and says, I want to serve your, your king because mine is powerless. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, this is our defensive weapon, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. They are coming. Here's the beautiful thing about Satan, though. He is bound. He is chained. He can, he, can, he can shoot arrows. You know why he has arrows? Because he can't confront. He can no longer accuse you to, directly. He has to shoot from a distance. And so it is our faith that stops those, those, those arrows. And take on the helmet of salvation. Guard your dome. Because it is the salvation 
that keeps us alive. It's our salvation that, that protects our head, that gives us our, our, our confidence. And then our one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Just like Jesus did in the wilderness. Just like all the faithful saints throughout history, it is the Word of God with which they fight. It is the only weapon they need. We don't have to get creative. We don't have to try to come up with our own weapons. We have the most powerful, living, and active weapon of God that will not come back void. But don't just think it is only this active external battle. Internally, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. This is the Christian life. We have all these things. We are soldiers of Christ. We have been given the armament of Christ. While we continue to pray and we continue to rest, notice every one of those things did not come from you. You were not given the the, the helmet. You were not given the belt. Excuse me, you did not bring the helmet. You did not bring the belt. You did not bring the, the, the breastplate. You, were not, you did not bring the shoes. You were given them all. You were entrusted to you. So that's why when Paul says share in the suffering of Christ, you were enlisted as soldiers in Christ's army. War is ugly, it means conflict, it means fighting. Therefore, you must all the more be strengthened in the grace of Christ. And so we can rest in the strength of Christ, in his grace, in his armor, while we fight. We are the most calm warriors in the world. Because we're fighting a battle that's already been won. But in our flesh, the idea of war is terrifying. Why? Because you might die. You might break a nail. Your family might die. Your country might lose. But not this war. This war has already been won. Our king is victorious. We saw last week he defeated everything and lastly defeating death. His kingdom is victorious. And in this kingdom you have a new family and this family will not die. And because he has defeated death, you will not die. What, how do you fight as a soldier if you will never die? How do you fight as a soldier if the worst thing they can do is take your body, but your soul lives on? This is what Paul is instilling in Timothy. Therefore, any suffering is momentary, and it's worth all the, all the discomfort. Why? Because we are soldiers of the suffering servant. Our Savior suffered so that we could be soldiers. Our Savior suffered so that we could be sons. Our Savior suffered so that we would live forever. And so our suffering, so light and so momentary compared to his. That's why we can share in it. And so in that, he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Um, this word for entangled, it's a, it's a picture of a mess of, 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 of string that's just thread that's wrapped around your hands that stops you from doing anything. Have you ever like 
you know, opened up or had a uh, fishing reel pop out and the, the, the line just goes everywhere. And it's such a mess and you can't do anything else because you're trying to untangle this thing. This is the, the, the picture that Paul is, is giving. It inhibits you from working. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. This civilian pursuit here, uh, the concerns of secular life or occupation. The civilian here, um, it's the Greek word root for our word pragmatism. What is, what, is, what is solely pragmatic, what solely has immediate implications. Okay, so what does this mean and what does this look like? I'm going to give two sets of exhortation here. Number one, what does this look like for Timothy? So this is spoken to pastors. This is for someone who is called to vocational ministry. A soldier on the front lines. It has a literal meaning for Timothy here. If you're on the front lines, it means full commitment. If you are called to pastor, this is your post. You stand guard. You are a watchman. You do not leave your post. You do not fall asleep. You watch, you protect, you feed those who've been entrusted to you. And so not being entangled here is especially true for a pastor. Uh, one of the texts we looked at in 1 Timothy, just a page prior or, or two in your Bible. 1 Timothy five seventeen, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, and a laborer deserves his wages. Timothy, you are, you are paid, you are supported because you labor, your work, your, your part of the battlefield is teaching and preaching for this, this group of Christ's sheep, the flock of God. He also tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, 14 that um, those who gain their, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is your occupation, Timothy, but it's not any ordinary occupation. We are called to forsake secular pursuits in a unique way, even things that are good in and of themselves. I know that my calling is different than most. There's a lot of things I would, I would like to do. Like, man, I wish I had more, more, more time for that, but anytime I regret not being able to plant a garden or travel the world or go scuba diving or learn an in instrument, any of the things that I'd like to do, Man, this is what I'm called to do. This is, and this is what I get to do. And my brothers who are in ministry, who are bivocational, they are highly in inhibited. I know men who have to go to work and have to think about preaching and don't have time to, to dedicate to caring for and shepherding sheep. This is why it is important that the laborer deserves his, his wages. So pastors... This first and foremost is pastors. Don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Your life's going to be different than everyone else. You can't pursue the same things everyone else does. Just like the Levites, your portion is different than everyone else's. Now, so that's for the pastors. But what about for all Christians? So Paul certainly is not telling Christians not to go to work and not to feed their, their families. Remember, Paul himself was a, was a tent maker because he didn't want to be a burden on anyone. Here's what he tells us in 1 Thessalonians Four, a couple books to your left. All the T books are together. That's very helpful in the New Testament. <laughs> First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. 
So he tells the saints who love one another well to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So every saint, we're called to work because we need to eat and because it's not good for us to sit around and be lazy all day. And in that work, you are an example. So what does it mean to not get entangled in civilian pursuits? Even if you're not on the front lines, don't pursue what the person standing across from you with with a rifle pointed at you pursues. Don't get entangled in what they're entangled with. You can just turn on any form of entertainment for five minutes and it will tell you what not to pursue. We saw it in 1 Timothy. Those who pursue wealth they fall into temptation. Our hope, our identity, our value is not in what we own, what we do, what we, what we achieve, how other people see us, how many likes we get, how our boss views us, whether we get a promotion or not. Don't pursue things that are meaningless in eternity. Meaning. Be, 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 be a hard worker. If you can get a promotion, get a promotion. But that's not your identity. That's not your, your hope. Don't pursue what the world pursues. And not that there are no beneficial secular pursuits. We have to hold these things in tension. Because in 1 Timothy, he told us, God gave you everything and enjoy what he gave you. It's good, enjoy it. But beware of the things that would entangle you. And so each one of us has to examine our hearts in that. Is what I am pursuing entangling my heart in such a way that I am bound by it and therefore I end up serving it? Is what I am pursuing entangling me and distracting me from being a good soldier? Is what I am pursuing making me love the gift more than the giver? You can, be, you can be a hard worker. You can be successful and praise God every step of the way and the Lord is pleased. Or you can be a hard worker and you can be successful and think that that's who you are and you forget the Lord every step of the way. So let me give you just a couple examples. Um, I could go on for days, but here's maybe a couple obvious ones. Let's talk about work. Um, You should work. You should be the best worker at wherever you work. Whatever you do, everyone should say, why does he work that hard? Why does she have the integrity that that she does? Therefore, as Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians, you can be a witness to those who work around you. That should be the Christian in every workplace. But if your job expects you to work late every day and not be home with your family, if your job asks you to work more and more weekends, if your job makes it that you can't attend church, if your job has all these extracurricular functions that you have to go to all these things and they are creating a religion in and of themselves, you will be entangled. That is not a good job. It may pay well. But if that job becomes an entanglement to your soul, is it worth it? Because I've been in those jobs. I've seen those people, and my flesh loves it. Yeah. I want to earn what they earn. I want to do what they do. I want to go out and drink what they drink. 
It's easy to get wrapped up in. If there's any temptation in that, better to be bagging groceries and flipping burgers. So that's number one. Um, number two, sports and entertainment. Wherever you fall in this, is it bad to watch TV or go to a game or play in a game? Of course not. Things are amoral unless they cause us to sin. Now, are there things you, you can watch that are sinful? Absolutely. But I think sports is one of those, those, those things that um, it is, in, I, I think it, it was our natural, national religion until sex became our national religion. Um, but it, sports is one of those innocuous things. It seems like this is, this is a good thing. And so whether it's your favorite team or your, your child's team, here's some things to answer, uh, ask yourself. Does my commitment to my sport, does it require religious devotion? Talk with a pastor friend recently who's up in Jacksonville, and we were talking about what it means to observe the Lord's Day and fellowship with the saints. And he said, you know, if they go to a uh, Jags game once in a while, um, you know, I don't think much of it. But if they buy season tickets, we're having a conversation. This is, this is especially true for men. It is easy to get caught up in the, the occult of sports, and it is a cult. Like, just a simple thing. I know parents struggle with this. When I grew up, no sports leagues played on, on, on Sundays. But now, they are worshiping on every, on every stretch of green grass every Sunday. Because that is their, that, that is their religion. Does our worship reflect Pursuing what glorifies God and, and goes on to eternity. And this could be any number of things in our lives. Or do I find myself doing the same thing that the pagan next door does? And there's no difference in, from our lives to theirs or our time to theirs. That's true of you. You are entangled. But he goes on in the last half of this verse here. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since... His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Since. It's not if you are a soldier of Christ. Since you are a soldier of Christ. Do you want your time and your energy being exhausted for his kingdom or a kingdom of your own making? And so since it is Christ who enlisted us. Jonathan helped me with this last night. Um, that an enlisted man is not a volunteer. If you're an enlisted man, you are chosen, you are selected, you are drafted for a purpose, for special use. You're not the guy who shows up and says, where can, where can I be used? You're the guy who, the, who your commanding officer says, I need you. I'm enlisting you for this particular purpose. And it is Christ who enlists us. It is Christ who enlisted us by his blood on the cross. It is Christ who enlists us through his sacrifice on our behalf, and who called us by him. This is not empty obligation. This is joyful service. This is obedient duty, because you owe him your very life. And so a call to be a soldier of Christ is the call to live with him because you have died with him. And our desire is to please him in this. All right, a little faster on these next two. Number two, 
the athlete. Uh, an athlete in the Greek sense is someone in competition. The root of this word means to struggle. Um, it's this ongoing exertion. They would train their, their, their bodies to be poured out over time. This is almost as much as military analogies, Paul uses athletic analogies. One of his favorite is that of a runner. Um, I, I want you to see the parallels to the Christian life in exactly what we were just talking about in 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 24. Watch the contrast here be, be, between the, um, the, the non-believers and the believers. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So you, Christian, run that you may obtain it. So he's using the analogy of the one who runs. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This, this contrast in athletics, everyone's running. Everyone's doing something. Everyone is pursuing something. Don't you pursue what's going to perish. A lot of you know that in the, the Greek Olympics, when they would win, they would get this, this wreath, whoop de doo and they would get it on their head, and they would stand on the podium like, like, like we have now. But you know what happens to that wreath in a couple days? It's dead. It means nothing. Sorry, all of the participation trophies you got, they mean nothing. They don't last. But we run for an imperishable crown. That's what Paul's talking about. Don't pursue, don't look at your, your, your goal, the civilian pursuits, as things that, which will perish. Your goal, your pursuit is what is imperishable. The crown of life, the crown of reward in heaven that does not perish. So when Paul says, I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, this isn't, the Christian life is not an exercise in, in futility. Everything else that anyone else pursues is futile. And yes, go to work. And yes, enjoy what, what, what God has given you. But don't think you can take that with you. Don't think it's going to last beyond this life. It's like boxing in the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's the exertion of the Christian life. Just like the soldier, I'm not fighting for my life. I'm fighting because of my life. And I don't want the one who has called me into this war, into this, this competition, to be put to shame because I disqualified myself. Christians don't run for earthly wreaths. We run for heavenly crowns. And so these runners are expected to run according to the rules. Just like every runner, every athlete has rules in his sport. You're in the 40 meter, the, the 200 yard, the, the uh, relay. So what are the rules for our sport? We are to run in a manner worthy of Christ. Um, one of my favorite uh, verses for the Christian life and the, the Christian uh, effort. First, uh, excuse me, Philippians 1, 27. We go through this in every members meeting. This is what our church should be known for. This is what we as believers should be known for. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The same thing entrusted to you is applied to your life. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear 
What does it look like? Okay, Christian, what does this race look like? That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the Christian race. It is not a competition where I'm trying to finish, and if I beat you, I get first place. Christ is first place, and he has guaranteed all of us to finish. Therefore, we can stand firm, we can rest in him as we run in him side by side. That's what Paul's getting at here. That is the picture of the Christian life. We run because Christ has already run. We will finish because there is only one gold medal that matters, and it is his. But he shares it with us. We are given his imperishable inheritance. And so we can run because we stand firm, we rest in him. Both these things are true. So what Paul says, you must compete according to the rules. So, remember I said everyone's pursuing something. Everyone is running after something. There are those who appear to be in the same race. But they run by their own rules for their own glory. You ever met these people? You've probably sat next to one in church. Yep, I'm here. But I got kind of a different way of doing things. I make my own rules. I run my own race. And God's going to appreciate me because of how creative and innovative I am. Um, Here's what Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 7. Those who run according to their own rules, for their own glory, by their own merit, here's what he tells them. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they seem like they're running, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They will not reach the finish line. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, look at the emphasis, Lord, Lord, look what I've done. Didn't we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. There are people who have done mighty works in the name of Jesus who are in hell right now. Judas is one of them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. According to the rules, we do everything we do in Christ. We obey our Father. We, we, we fight, we compete according to his rules. To his glory, not our own. That is why the word of God is so important. And as for Timothy, the rules for teachers are stepped up. Because elders are held to a higher standard. This good deposit, this this word of faith, excuse me, the, the, the word of God, the rule of faith and practice, we have to run according to it. And we have to help others run according to it. And we have to train others and pass off the baton as in a relay to the ones who are coming in the leg behind us. That is a great responsibility because we don't pass the baton to the wrong man. And we would be a fool if we ran our race, didn't teach him how to run, and then hand him a baton and think he's going to finish well. Number three, the third illustration here, the hardworking farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Um, Like farming, ministry is hard work. Ministry assumes hard work. It assumes spiritual toil. I do not have a vast uh, experience in in farming. My very little 
very short time on, on uh, farms has, be, has been me watching other people do a lot of work. And the same guy who gets up as the sun's going up is the same guy who's the last one in the house who gets up the next morning while I'm still sleeping. That is the, the, the hardworking farmer. There, there, are no, there are no lazy farmers out there who are, who are, who are eating. It does not, does not work. They have to deal with difficult conditions and difficult animals. It's nothing like ministry. But ministry is also very difficult. I don't know why. During a day, a pastor does not pick up a shovel or does not bale any hay and comes home and is exhausted and sore. How does that work? It is hard work. But it's the hardworking farmer who gets the first share. So like warfare, ministry has conflict and suffering. Like athletics, ministry requires struggle and discipline. Like farming, ministry involves hard work over time. And people do not know. The person eating the food of the farmer has no idea how much hard work went into it. But they love to enjoy the fruit. And if you are a hardworking farmer, you get to be the first one to taste that fresh piece of corn, that first apple of the season. So Paul's encouraging Timothy here. Timothy, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to struggle. But you get to be on the front line of the battle and of the reward. The immediate benefit of laboring in the preaching and teaching and discipling is you get to be on the front row of what the Lord's doing. You know what? I don't care if I don't go scuba diving or travel the world or all the things I want to do. Because when, when the light bulb goes off in someone's life, when someone grows, when I see some, a dead person come to life and be born again in Christ, that's worth all of it. When I see someone who is born again, who goes from baby talk to learning how to speak, to learning how to crawl, it's worth it all. And when that young child who was crawling six months ago is now walking, that's worth celebrating. And the one who was walking last year is now running and outrunning others. That is the first share of the crops. And I get to praise God by seeing that every step of the way. But this is not just for pastors either. We as Christians, if you sow a spiritual crop, you will reap a spiritual harvest. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Paul uses all of these analogies in, in many places. I'm just going to show you a couple. Galatians chapter 6, or 7 through 10. He starts by saying, The one who's taught the word, sharing all good things with the one who, uh, who uh, teaches. So by encouraging good pastors, you actually share in this as well. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. For the one who sows of his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Don't give up. Sow what is worthwhile. Invest in what will not perish. Jesus told us 
that the harvest is plentiful. We know the laborers are few, but we all share a role in that. One more, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's another beautiful picture of this. When there's a debate going on in, in, in Corinth, who's the greater teacher, Paul or Apollos? Who should I follow? Paul puts this all in perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are all God's fellow workers. We are God's field, God's building. Here's what the picture of the church is. It doesn't matter if I am the main one that everyone hears. People are discipled and cared for every day of the week by members of this church. Every one of you gets to come alongside of the, te- the public teaching ministry of this church. And so whether you plant or whether you water, even if you just pray with the person next to you in, in, in the pew, you can celebrate the harvest in that person's life. You can be encouraged that whether your part you feel like is great or you feel like it is small. We are all fellow workers. We're working for the same vine dresser in the same vineyard. We are of the same house. We are all servants of the same master. And we can all celebrate because it's not my work that gets celebrated. It's not your work that gets celebrated. It is God's work, his increase that we celebrate. And so, Christian, do not be discouraged. Do not be weary in doing good. Because we get to share in the harvest of our king. So that's kind of on a corporate level. Um, Last application here. Let's get personal. I know you guys like when I get personal. Um, I have conversations often, and people wonder why there's no fruit in their lives. But here's the question. When you ask that of yourself, are you a hardworking farmer of your own soul? Do you till the ground? Do you plant and water in your own heart? Do you fertilize? Do you weed? J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness says that there is no gain without pain. Do we think we will really grow spiritually? Do you think there will be a fruit in our lives without any work? We wouldn't apply that to anything else. We wouldn't do that in our jobs. We don't, we don't go to the gym like that. We don't think if, if, if I watch a bunch of, well, maybe we do. If I watch a bunch of strong people on, on YouTube, I'll be strong one day. How many people spend more time watching workout videos than actually working out? <laughs> My wife raised her hand. <laughs> a couple of people raised her hand. <laughs> How many people approach the Christian life the same way? I watched 40 sermons this, this week. But did you till your own soul? Did you fertilize your own heart? And how often have you pursued every other secular pursuit with all your might and never given the same intensity to your own heart? Because there's a lazy worker in the office and there's a lazy worker in the heart. But if you're a hardworking farmer, if you till the soil of your own heart, if you water it with the word of God, if you, if you put the old man to death and struggle for righteousness, 
and you take on the discipline of the Lord, and you commit yourself to his word, and you serve one another, there will be fruit in your life. And you'll be the first one to see it, and you'll be the first one to benefit from it, but it won't just be you. Your house will benefit from it. Your family will benefit from it. Your church will benefit from it. And if we're all hardworking in our own hearts, we will all feast on the fruits of our labors. So, all that to say, we get to the point where Paul is at the end of this letter. We want to be able to say, verse 7 of chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. What is that crown of righteousness? What do we wait for? It is the Lord. Saints, take heart. That's why we work. That's why we run. That's why we labor. That's why we fight. Because it is Christ who's waiting for us. It is he who has given us the crown. It is he who is keeping us the crown. And he's the righteous judge. And he'll award me on that day. We should be able to say that. He will reward me on that day. But we should also say, but not only me. All those who loved his appearing. When we, like Paul says in, first, er, in, in Philippians, when we labor side by side, we all look forward to that, 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 that crown. We all look forward to that day. And we spur one another on so that we all finish well. So when Paul says here in verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That is my prayer this morning, that you think over these words. This is self-explanatory, but it does require some reflection and consideration. So I'm going to give you a couple things to think on, give you a few moments, and I'll pray for us. Brothers and sisters, we are soldiers. We are enlisted by our king to please him. And I'll tell you this, you will never regret fighting. You will never regret running. You will never regret working in his kingdom. Our Lord is faithful. And he will reward our faithfulness. More on that next week. So I don't want you to hear this and feel guilty. I want you to hear that you can rest in him in faith while you work, while you run, while you fight. Think about your own heart. Think about your own pursuits, your own hope. Does it look like what we saw in this, in this passage? Or does it look like the world around us? May the Lord grant you understanding in everything, and I'll give you a few moments. Lord, give us understanding. Give us hearts that desire you. Help us to be faithful soldiers in the fight because of our victorious king. Help us to rest in his victory 
to take comfort under his helmet of salvation, to find security in his breastplate of righteousness, to be sturdy with his belt of truth, to be mobile in his gospel, to be protected by his shield of faith, and to be on guard with the sword of the Spirit. May you be glorified in this church and in your people across the globe as we labor in your vineyard for your harvest, looking forward to your crown, seeing our king face to face. We love you and we praise you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.